One year when I was working in publishing, we had our annual staff Christmas party. And there were about 150 people in the room. And they had set up tables that held six or eight people. So you had to find a seat at one of the tables. And the CEO did as CEOs so often do, came in right before the program was ready to start. And there were not many seats left at that point. There was one at our table. So he saw that and he came over and very politely he said, uh, may I sit here? And the woman who was sitting next to that empty seat was waiting for somebody else from her department to come. So she said, no, somebody's coming for that. <laughs> so he was like, oh, okay. And he walked away, and we just burst out laughing. We're like, you just dissed the CEO. She's like, what? I did? She'd only been there like two weeks. She'd never seen his photo. <laughs> uh, well, that is exactly what happens when Jesus walks into the world he's created. Most people don't recognize him. Now, the Bible is brutally honest about this. He came into the very world he created, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. Well, this is an understatement. I tried to run the math this week, and at the time of Jesus, there were approximately 500,000 Jews living in Israel. After Jesus does three years plus of public, full-time ministry, how many of them are, go, he's the one, we recognize that he's the one? 120-ish, something like that. So I, that's uh, not even three one-hundredths of 1%. One so what that means is Jesus comes and 99.97% of people then who were waiting for a Messiah do not recognize him. Okay, but that's the broad population. How about the people whose job it is to study the scriptures every day. You, they're going to get a better score. They're going to recognize that Jesus is special. He's sent from God. He's the chosen one. He's the Messiah. But they don't. John the baptizer tells the Pharisees, I baptize with water, but right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognize. You don't recognize. But... Let's not come down too hard on these religious leaders because can we take in the fact that even John the baptizer, who was clearly set apart from God, he was considered by Jesus the greatest person who had ever lived up to that time, and he was Jesus' own cousin, and he didn't recognize that Jesus was God's Messiah. He says so himself in tonight's gospel reading, John 1, verse 31. I did not recognize him as the Messiah. So I thought about this. I mean, day after day, John puts on his rough camel clothes, camel hair clothing, stands down in the muddy Jordan River, and there's lines and lines of people coming for baptism. And he, he knows that he, I'm out here baptizing so that the Messiah will be revealed. But, uh, you know, every day he stares at another line. And they all look kind of the same. They'll have dark hair. They'll have Mediterranean skin. They'll have brownish robes. Even John cannot pick Jesus out of the crowd. 
And why was that? And what was finally the tip-off for him? Well, the answer to those questions will tell us a whole lot about Jesus, but it also tells us a whole lot about how we live like Jesus. To me, this is essential guidance for every Christian, all the way from little Hallie, who will be baptized shortly, up to our most senior saints. But fair warning, many Christians do not choose this way to live. It's available, it's freeing, but it's often left untried. So let me paint for you as clearly as I can this freer way of living uh, that Jesus chose and you and I are invited to as well. Okay, so why was it that so many people did not recognize Jesus? He didn't look one bit different from anybody else. If anything, he looked like somebody you don't notice. The prophet Isaiah tells us straight up, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. I mean, if Jesus were physically on earth today, he'd be the guy that you go by in the Walmart aisle, he's wearing sweatpants and a t-shirt. You don't notice. You're just trying to find your stuff. Now, most movie makers, filmmakers about Jesus struggle with this. So they usually show Jesus with the blue diagonal sash that nobody else has. It's always blue. It's unclear why he has one and no one else does. And it's not even really clear what it does. <laughs> now, now, the chosen uh, is an exception. It does use the blue sash, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount episode. But it does a great job humanizing Jesus and his followers. If, if you've seen it, you know Jesus has a sense of humor. And, and Matthew's on the spectrum. And Mary Magdalene has a past. And little John has a disability. Or little James, excuse me. But even on The Chosen, in many scenes, Jesus still stands out. And I tried to figure out why that is. And I think it's because they cast an actor who is about six inches taller than almost all the other disciples. <laughs> and also, except for Matthew's bright white robe, he's usually got the lightest robe in the room. Now, this is not a criticism of mine at all. I'm guessing those were important requirements for cinematography. But here is my point. The real Jesus on earth didn't stand out at all. Not by his looks, not by his height, not by the color of his robe. He was just another guy in the crowd. And even John the Baptizer, who was eagerly looking for the Messiah, didn't recognize it. So what was finally the tip-off? John tells us, John 1, verse 33. He says, I didn't know he was the one. But, but, when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And John says, I saw this happen to Jesus. So, I testify that he's the chosen one of God. And John, from here on out, he's ready to stake his, his life and does stake his life on that. He, he calls him right here the chosen one of God. He calls him the one who's greater than I am. He calls him the one who's existed long before me. Think what that says. 
eternal. That's astonishing. And now, now can we take in, John's willing to say all of that, and he has not seen Jesus do one miracle yet. There hasn't been one sick person healed yet. There has definitely not been anybody raised from the dead. Jesus has not yet turned water into burgundy for the, the wedding banquet. But John notices almost like what you might call a birthmark on Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes down and rests on him and remains on him. What makes Jesus different from every other human being is nothing on the outside. It's simply this, the Holy Spirit, that's it. Jesus even says of the Son of Man, meaning himself, God gives him the Spirit without limit. So, okay, how does this apply to you and me? Very directly. Jesus is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. That's what John says here. So what it means is when you and I believe in him and we are baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on us, descends on you, descends on me. The Holy Spirit lives in us. The Holy Spirit starts working through us. Sometimes we're aware of that, sometimes we're not. But think about what this means. Jesus, when God comes in, the, in Jesus Christ, he comes not only as human, but an ordinary human, an unrecognized human, a human without a lot of advantages, a human really on the underside of life. His country is occupied by an enemy army. His mom and dad are poor. And yet, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he lives an extraordinary life. The way he lives his life then becomes a model for us. Ordinary, yet somehow made extraordinary by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Human and holy. Empty of myself, my ego, and full of God. Now, I think this is very freeing. Because we're free to be human. We're just free to be ordinary. And yet we are also given the dignity and the adventure and the joy of having the Holy Spirit work in us and, and live through us. Now, I have to say, I said that a lot of Christians don't choose this way of life because all of us are constantly being trained not to live this. Let me explain what I mean. Psychologists out at UCLA uh, analyzed the values of characters on popular TV shows over a 40-year period. And they chose specifically TV shows that were popular with preteens. So you older folks will remember Happy Days. And some of you slightly younger will remember Hannah Montana. And they went all the way through. Okay. And here's what they found. 40 years ago and 30 years ago and even 20 years ago, the number one value in these shows for preteen viewers was community feeling or being part of a group. That's what the shows were ultimately about. That was their message. But about 15 years ago, community feeling dropped from first to 11th. You know, that's quite a shot, uh, change. What shot up to number one? Fame. As one writer put it, although shows may be fun and entertaining, the not-so-subtle message is clear. If you want your life to count, then find ways to be famous. So we now live in a world where 
many people, not just teens, will curate their brand. If they post something and it doesn't receive enough likes, they will take down that post so that they will not be humiliated that only 37 people clicked. Everybody wants to be an influencer, a TikTok influencer, a YouTube influencer. Nobody just wants to like go to work and humbly do something. And, and, and friends, we are not immune to this because we have egos, right? And we'd love the affirmation. I mean, a while back I wrote in my journal in all caps. I don't write in all caps because it sounds like I'm screaming, but this one I did. <laughs> I feel worthless unless I am doing something visible and applauded. We have such a fear of just being ordinary. The word average is considered a put down. To be overlooked, to be unrecognized, that's the worst thing. That really cuts deep. And it's something we all, all shudder and run from. It's like we're all constantly performing on America's Got Talent and we all just want the golden buzzer. But there's not many. So what do we do with this drive to be extraordinary, this longing, and yet this fear of being ordinary? Well, the good news is Jesus offers us a different way of life, a very freeing way of life. And in his way of life, you and I are free to be human. We're free to really just be ordinary. Not highly noticed. Because what makes you and me actually special and, and have that adventure in life is that the Holy Spirit's working in us. So we don't have to try to fight the fact, you know what, most of us live lives that nobody will remember after a while. We're not going to be in histories. There's not going to be a lot of monuments for most of us. And that's okay. That's okay. Because we'll be with Christ forever. Extraordinary as possible because the Holy Spirit works in us. Now let me give you some pictures of this. If you're a Christian, have you ever said something to somebody, even in just an offhanded comment, and later they go, you know what you said, that, that really hit me. I really needed that. And you go, I did? I was just talking. Right? Because we're just ordinary. And yet what happened there? The extraordinary Holy Spirit spoke through us something that God knew that friend of yours needed to hear. You guys, astonishing. It happens a lot. How about, have you ever felt a sudden urge to pray for somebody, a person, a situation, a crisis, and you find out later that it was right then that they, got, they needed it more than ever. They got a terrible medical report. The car started careening off the road, whatever it was. And they're like, how did you know? I didn't. I'm ordinary. But the Holy Spirit in me knew, and the Holy Spirit wanted you to be cared for. So he led me to pray for you right at that time. Some of you might know Kevin Harney, uh, a Wheaton grad. Karen and I have met him. He's a pastor out on the West Coast now. And when Harney was in high school, he got a job at a, a fast food restaurant, and they explained to him, look, Kev, since you're the new guy here, here's how it works. You get to clean the floor drains. So every night at the end of your shift, you're going to get down on the floor, you're going to reach back under the counter, and you're going to pull out all the sour food particles and the grease and everything else that gets trapped back in there, and then you're going to scrub the porcelain until it shines. Got it? 
But don't worry, Kev, because when the next person comes, we hire the next new person, you can dump the job on them. Okay, and that's how their system worked. Well, before long, the next person got hired, but Harney figured, you know what? I'm a Christian. I follow somebody who washes feet. So he, tell, he told the next guy, he showed him how to clean out the floor drains, and then he says, but every night, I'll do it with you. Well, he did that, and the manager saw this after a few days, and he pulled Kevin aside, and he said, look, man, you don't need to do this. You did your time. Let the new guy take it. And Kevin's like, that's okay. I just want to help. The week after that, the manager says, I'd like to talk with you about uh, becoming an assistant manager. Now, what's going on here? Harney's living an ordinary life. He's on a floor of a fast food restaurant with his hand in grease, okay? But the Holy Spirit inside him is giving him the power to do what nobody else in that restaurant ever thought to do, which is to actually get down on the floor and clean out the junk and help the guy who came behind you. And that's an extraordinary life. And it comes through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. So let me ask you a couple questions tonight. Number one, am I still trying to be noticed or am I willing to be human, ordinary, unrecognized, often overlooked, and even left behind? That's the life Jesus lived. That's the life that God experienced as one of us. When Jesus came, he emptied himself. Am I open to that? Uh, there's a great phrase by Francois Fenelon, one of the greatest spiritual writers of all time. I recommend him. And he says, be content to be obscure. Be content to be obscure. And that walloped me, and I put it in my journal, which is why I remember it. Martin Luther had this phrase. He said, God when, he's, when God creates the world, he creates out of nothing. And until you and I are nothing, God can create nothing out of us. So the first question is, am I, I, am I willing to be ordinary? And the second question is, am I willing to open myself wide to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit? Good news, if you want this, if there's something in you that goes, that would be amazing. I could set down the burden of needing to shine and needing to be noticed. That would be amazing. And it'd be so great to have more of God at work in my life. Whether they notice me or not. Well, the fact, if you're feeling a tug toward that, if you're going, I do want that. That's the Holy Spirit already at work in you. Otherwise, you wouldn't want it. Right. Now, imagine if everybody here would just gradually, day by day, choose to push past our fear of being ordinary and find the freedom of letting the Holy Spirit do his extraordinary stuff in us. I'm guessing it'll look something like this. In about the year 180, somebody wrote a letter trying to explain how do you identify Christians? There are still a relatively new movement. And so he's trying to, how do you pick them out of a crowd? He said, the writer says, and this is in a document called The Letter to Diognetus, it's not easy because Christians aren't all from one ethnic group. You find Christians in lots of different ethnic groups. And they're not just in their own country. Christians live in lots of different countries. Oh, and by the way, Christians don't have their own language, although I guess we could joke a little they do, but, <laughs> but they speak the language of wherever they live, right? And, and then he goes on, and I'm quoting now, with regard to dress, food, 
and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in. And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They share their meals, but not their wives. They show love to all men, and all men persecute them. Don't you see them exposed to wild beasts that they may be persuaded to deny the Lord and yet not overcome? Do you not see that the more of them are punished, the greater becomes the number of the rest? This does not seem to be the work of man. This is the power of God. How do you pick the Messiah out of the crowd? Look for the most ordinary person, but the one on whom the Holy Spirit rests. And... And how do you pick the followers of Jesus out of a crowd? Look for the ordinary people, but the ones on whom the Holy Spirit rests. 